Good evening, everyone, and welcome once again to our Wednesday night Bible study. Once again this week, we are in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Uh, This is a continuation of last week's lesson, uh, Adam and Christ. Now, we saw last week that uh, Adam's sin affected us in two different ways. Uh, The first way is what is known as the doctrine of original sin. And what this means is that as a result of Adam's sin, we all come into this world with a sinful nature. We all come in with sinful appetites, sinful tendencies, sinful desires, with a, with a bent towards sin, uh, if, you, if you will. As I said last week with the example of, of the chicks, uh, chicks aren't hens because they lay eggs. They lay eggs because they're, they're hens. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because that's who we are. We produce uh, what, uh, what we are in our very nature. The second way that Adam's sin affected us is what's known as the doctrine of imputed sin. Now, imputed sin is the ruin of our standing before God. It's not something we do. It's not really doesn't have a whole lot to do uh, with us personally. It is a guilt that is charged to us outside of anything that we've done. You see, in our position, or in his position as our representative, Adam did something. He made a decision to rebel against God, and that action affected us all. Uh, As I said last week, it's like a president who we elect as our representative, and then he makes decisions, for example, to go to war with another country that affects all the citizens of, of this country. So the guilt of Adam's sin is charged not just to Adam, but to us all. When, when he rebelled against God, all of his descendants went with him. We are regarded as having sin in Adam. Now, this all leads up to Paul's statement in verse 18, where he said this, So also, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. See, for many people, this, this, this doctrine of imputed sin is a very difficult thing to swallow. Um, so we've we got to be very sure that that's what Paul means and that's why we saw last week his clarification in verses 13 to 17 are so important see the fact what he's trying to show here is that everybody dies he said this yet death reigned from adam to moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of adam paul's point is this everybody dies even those like babies or or the mentally infirm people who can't see god in creation the revelation of god they can't they they don't even know right from wrong yet at the end of the day they still die see the bible is clear the wages of sin is death so if it's not their own sin they're dying for then whose is it well again that's what that's whole that's paul's whole point it's the sin of adam now this brings us to the very focal point of this passage. When when Paul in verse 14 mentions Adam, he said this, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the NIV says that Adam was a pattern of the one to come. Uh, The New Living uh, Translation says he was a symbol or a representation who was to come. So in some way, Adam was a likeness, if you will, of Christ. Now, if we don't get anything else from these two lessons, we absolutely need to get this because the all-important parallel is seen right here in this verse. What is it about Adam 
and what he did that is like Christ and what he did. Well, the parallel is this. Just as those who are in Adam die because of his sin imputed or credited to them, in the same way those who are in Christ live because of his righteousness imputed or credited to them. Or or let's try to put this a different way. Just as it is not your personal sinning of those in Adam that brought their condemnation, in the same way it's 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 not your personal goodness of those who are in Christ that brings their justification. Does the fact that Adam's sin is charged to you, does that seem unfair? Most people would say absolutely yes. So let me ask you a second question. Does the fact that the righteousness of Christ is credited to you, does that seem unfair? You know, there's an old saying that applies right here. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You see, you can't love the doctrine of imputed righteousness and then turn around and hate the doctrine of imputed sin. You see, somehow, and 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 granted, it is an absolute mystery to me, but somehow they go together. Somehow the fact that Adam's sin is charged to all of his descendants makes it possible for us to be credited with the righteousness of Christ. Think for a moment about the angels in heaven. The Bible tells us that when Lucifer rebelled against God, that he swept a third of the angels out of heaven uh, with him. You see, these angels who rebelled against God, they don't have this mysterious linkage to Adam's sin, do they? They also have absolutely zero chance of ever having the righteousness of Christ credited to them. Now you ask me, which one seems better? So verse 18 explains how Adam and Christ are alike. They both commit one act that affects many. Let's read that verse. So also as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, that is how they are alike. Verses 15 to 17 lays out the contrast, how Christ is not like Adam. And and I want to tell you right up front, before we read these verses, that Paul's whole point here is to show the superiority of Christ to, to Adam. You see, some people may look at what Adam did, and what Adam did led to sin and condemnation and death. And they may say, well, that's a, that's a minus 10 on the scale. And then Christ comes along through his obedience, and, and what he did leads to justification and life and righteousness. And they may say, well, that's a plus 10. And so they kind of cancel one another out. But listen, that misses the point entirely. Christ is not a plus 10. He's, he's plus a million, million, million. The idea here is what he has done is incomparably better than what uh, Adam did. So I'm going to show you three contrasts that Paul gives between Adam and Christ. Contrast number one in verse 15. He says this, but the free gift, and he's talking about righteousness, is not like the trespass or the sin. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now, I want you to see something here. The contrast that Paul is concerned with, and this is going to be very important, is not in quantity, but in quality. You see, Adam's death or Adam's act brought death and and sin and condemnation. 
But Christ's act, his act of obedience, not only has the power to cancel the effect of Adam's work, but to then turn around and create in a positive way additional things such as life and righteousness and peace and and justification. And by the way, Adam's act can be undone. Christ's act cannot be undone. In fact, according to Romans 4.16, it is guaranteed. Contrast number two, verse 16. Paul goes on, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You see, Paul is saying, you know what? Adam's sin, one sin, brought condemnation, a a lot of condemnation, obviously, to everyone. Therefore, if you add many sins, it should be much greater condemnation. Logically, correct? But God's grace is so superior that it triumphs even over many transgressions. Contrast number three, verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through this one man, Jesus Christ. And I want you to look very carefully here and don't miss what what Paul said. He does not say, if death reigned through one, much more will life reign through the other. In other words, Paul is not just saying you trade one ruler, which is death, for another ruler, which is life. He doesn't say that at all. He says much more. He says that someday through Jesus Christ, we will move by being we'll move from being ruled by death to actually becoming a ruler in life. Not just being ruled by life, but becoming a ruler ourselves. So let's sum it up. Verse 15. The work of Christ is of greater quality and certainty than the work of Adam. Verse 16. The work of Christ is able to cancel many sins and bring peace and life. Verse 17, the work of Christ takes us from being ruled by death to being a ruler in life. You see, the fact is, you can really take all of humanity, everyone who's ever lived, everyone who's alive now, everyone who will live in the future, and you can put them in one of two buckets. Everyone stands in relationship to one of two men. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. And your eternal destiny uh, stands or falls against who you belong to. First Corinthians fifteen twenty two. Paul says it this way: For as in Adam all who are in him die, so also in Christ shall all who are in him be made alive. See, if you belong to Adam, you're under a sentence of death because of his sin and disobedience. But if you belong to Christ, you are assured of eternal life. Finally, in verse eighteen, we've seen this several times. Paul summarizes his argument. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, this is an incredible verse, and it really is the, the central verse of his argument. Now, But I need to point out two things. Number one, what is this one act of righteousness that Jesus did? Now, I think it's pretty clear here that Paul is talking about the death of Christ on the cross. The reason for that, look at verse 19, which is the very next verse. He says this, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So he's talking specifically about an act of obedience. Now, certainly that could involve 
any any act in Christ's life, or it could actually involve all of Christ's life, excuse me, for he certainly was obedient in everything that he did. But almost always in the Bible, when Paul talks about the obedience of Christ, he's talking about his death on the cross. For example, Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Now, let me say this. We talk a lot about the death of Christ on the cross. And by the way, we should talk a lot about it. We, that, is, that is certainly appropriate. We talk a lot less about the life that he lived. But let me tell you, the life that Jesus lived is just as important. You see, when we talk about having the righteousness of Christ imputed or credited or charged to us through faith, we're not just making something up out of thin air. This isn't some kind of pretend righteousness. It is the real righteousness of a man who lived a perfectly obedient, perfectly uh, sinless, perfectly righteous life. The second thing I want to point out about that verse is this. Paul says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, we got to be very careful here. It is absolutely true that Adam's one act of disobedience brought death to everybody. Everybody dies, even, as Paul said, little babies and, and the mentally infirm, people that don't even know right from wrong. Everybody dies because they belong to Adam. Then he says this, the act of righteousness that Christ did leads to justification in life for all men. Now, is Paul teaching here that everybody eventually will be justified, that everybody will be saved? Is that the proper conclusion? If it is, then this verse seems to be teaching universalism, which is the belief that everyone will be saved. Now, I understand the appeal of universalism. I mean, who likes the idea of hell? Nobody likes that. The problem that universalists have, though, is there are too many texts which clearly teach that not everyone is going to be saved, that there is a hell and punishment for those who don't embrace Christ by faith in this life. Let me give you a few verses. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with, and don't miss this word, everlasting. See, you can't say that there's a punishment for a period of time and then they go to heaven. No. No, Paul is clear that this punishment is an everlasting punishment from the presence of the Lord. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Romans 2.5, In accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. Romans 2, 9 and 10, tribulation and anguish on every soul on every soul of man who does evil. Romans 2, 12, for as many as have sinned without the law will perish without the law. By the way, those are all written by Paul. So Paul clearly understands that not everybody's going to be saved, that there is a punishment for those who don't embrace Christ. So people who believe in universalism are guilty of cherry-picking the evidence. They'll grab a verse like Romans 5.18 and use the word all, but they don't point, they don't have anything to say about um, uh, this, these other texts. So let's come back to Romans 5.18. What exactly is this verse teaching? Well, some people believe that 
when Paul uses the word all, he's talking about an offer of justification. But I, I just don't think that makes any sense. In fact, how could Christ be better than Adam if all he can do is offer justification and not actually bring it to pass? In fact, Paul's whole point of bringing Adam into this conversation is to show the superiority of, of Christ. And I, and I think here is where we touch on the most likely explanation for Paul's wording. You see, throughout the, the verses, Paul has maintained this parallel. All, all, many, many, those kind of things. But Paul's point is not that the same amount of benefits or, the amount, or that the benefits go to the same amount of people. As I said earlier, it's not about quantity. It's about quality. Paul's point is always that Christ affects those who are his just as certainly and even in a better way than Adam affects those who are his. So I don't believe Paul's use of the word all here uh, is actually meaning everyone who's ever existed. In fact, we see this in other verses in Romans. For example, Romans 8, 32 to 33, Paul said this, He who did not spare his own son, but, del for, but delivered him up for us all. Well, now, who's Paul talking about? Is he talking about the whole world? Is he talking about everybody who's ever lived? No. Look at what he says. How shall, not, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect or God's chosen? So here, when Paul uses the word all, he's not referring to the entire world. He's talking about the elect of God. How about Romans twelve eighteen? If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, does Paul expect me to live peaceably with every person in the world? No. He obviously means those that I come in contact with. Or how about Romans sixteen nineteen? Your obedience has become known to all. Well, certainly the whole world is not going to know about my obedience, especially in that time and day when there's no internet, no phone, no television. He means to those in your sphere of, of influence. So in summary, I don't believe that this verse in any way, shape, or form teaches universalism. Do I wish Paul had used a different word or different language? Yeah, I kind of do because I think that would have... Uh, gotten rid of any misconceptions. But we never create doctrine based on one verse. We look at the evidence of Scripture, and the evidence here is clearly on the side of the fact that not everyone gets saved. Now, we come to the end, and Paul is drawing his argument to a close. And it seems that he's in anticipating, if you will, one final objection. He spent this whole you know, from 12 all the way up to now, talking about Adam and Christ, Adam and Christ, Adam and Christ. And you're, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're one or the other. And he, I think he, he pictures or he anticipates this objection coming from the Jews who might say, well, what about the law? You see, the Jews put a lot of stock in keeping the rules and the regulations. They, they base their salvation on the law. So what about the law? What part does it play? Well, he answers that question in verses 20 and 21. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, you know what? The law did come with a purpose, but its purpose was never to change the situation created by Adam. It was never given to erase or neutralize or cancel in any way, shape, or form what Adam did. In fact, 
He says its purpose was to make it worse. Its purpose was to make it worse. In Romans 7.13, he said this, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. You see what the law does. I could sit here all day and say, you know, it's not fair that I'm lumped in with Adam and all of this. I could say that all day, but you know what? The law makes me look in the mirror and it makes sin real to me individually. And at the end of the day, it turns each one of us into our own Adam. It makes me see that, you know what, I'm just as guilty as he is. I really don't have any complaints. I have no place to whine and, and uh, because at the end of the day, I'm just like he is. So Paul says this, Galatians 3.19, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. You see, the, the whole purpose of the law was to show us that you can't do it. You can never be good enough. The whole purpose of the law was to, to reveal how desperate our situation was, to make us see how hopelessly lost we are without grace. So the law seems to be a negative thing, right? It makes sin worse. But it turns out that God, it was a gift to us with an ultimately positive impact, which is to point us toward grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Romans 5. We know that this is a difficult uh, passage of Scripture, God. Um, but uh, as I said last week, you don't dig for treasure with a rake. Sometimes we've got to get down and, and dig deep. And so, Lord, I ask you to bless this time for those that are, that are watching and listening. Uh, God, help us to understand what you've done for us. God, just show us, God, in some way, like you never have before, God, just the realization of what your grace has delivered us from. And God, I, I promise when you do that for me and others, we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.